Hello, podcast listeners. This is Rob again, and I'd like to ask you for a favor. As I often say, our mission here at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by helping companies improve their process safety programs. However, we can only meet our mission by working with more companies, and that's where you come in. If your company needs a PSM audit or perhaps needs help with a process hazard analysis, or maybe you don't know how to submit an RMP plan to EPA, let us know. These are all things that we can help with. At Amplify Process Safety, we are experts in all aspects of PSM and RMP regulations, including PHAs, mechanical integrity, management of change, and we also have lots of useful knowledge related to NFPA requirements, combustible dust, etc. So if you or someone at your company could use our help or just wants to talk about some things related to process safety, please don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, whenever you want to, you can reach me on my direct line, 207-229-0862. And as I said, if you know of anyone who can use our services, please let us know. Till next time, be safe out there. Welcome to Amplify Your Process Safety, the podcast that provides the experience and expertise you need when it comes to process safety and risk management. Our hands-on approach will give you the insight needed, whether you're new to industry or process safety, in a role where you interact with aspects of process safety, or an experienced process safety professional. Join us in our mission to protect people, the companies they work for, and the communities where they operate by making process safety knowledge available to all. Hello, podcast listeners, and welcome back to the Amplify Your Process Safety podcast. I'm Rob Bartlett. Thanks for joining us. For this episode, I'm joined by one of our talented process safety consultants here at Amplify, John Doan. Welcome back, John. Hey, Rob. Okay, John. So what's our topic for today? Today's topic, we're going to talk about managing risk at remote facilities. Okay. So we know what risk is. We talk about risk all the time here related to process safety. Uh, However, probably be good to define what we mean by a remote facility. So when we're talking about remote facilities, we're going to talk about facilities or equipment that's off-site in the middle of nowhere pretty much, or there's very little on-site operators or mechanics there to help support the facility. And this is usually seen in the oil and gas industry, especially in the upstream and midstream sectors. So in the upstream oil and gas business, it's usually producers out there who are extracting resources from the ground, such as natural gas, crude oil, and then in those crude oil and natural gas, you usually get contaminants like water or produced water or uh, H2S and CO2, and you usually don't want that sent down to your pipelines because that could cause corrosion. So Mm -hmm. they'll separate those at those tank batteries and then send it down the pipeline. On the other end of the industry is your midstream and that could include your pipelines, either sending pressurized gas or hydrocarbon liquids to the end users. That could be refineries or plants for further processing. But those are usually in remote facilities or remote processing plants because it's closer to producers because sometimes those products are difficult to pipeline just because of how much contaminants there are and you just need to clean it before getting to the end users. Okay. So, so we've got most of the time, you know, certainly in the podcast and most of the companies that we deal with, um, chemical companies, refiners or whatever, you know, these are larger facilities with lots of people around, probably in something that is, um, 
you know, has certainly um, other, you know, receptors nearby. What we're talking about here is we're talking about kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And our main example, at least for our discussion today, is in the in the upstream and the midstream section of oil and gas. Is that yeah. accurate? Okay. So I would imagine that there are differences in the way that those facilities are managed, given the fact that they are remote. So, so my question really starts there is, is, so how is risk thought of differently in these remote facilities versus a facility that's either manned by many people or maybe in a more urbanized environment or just has more offsite receptors nearby? So how, how, do, we, how, how do companies think of risk differently in these, in these remote situations? Yeah, there's a few different ways of looking at it. You know, when you look at your risk matrix, you kind of look at how's this hazard or consequence damage, you know, your community or your personnel or to the environment. When you're at a remote facility and your operators there maybe twice, two times a day and maybe there for 30 minutes to an hour, uh, that kind of opens your risk of what's the chances of someone getting hurt being fairly low. Same with your community impact. If there's no one there within miles, what's the chance of actually, you know, hurting your neighbors or some residential or commercial areas? And worse, and most of the time in environmental situations, it could be impact should be pretty low because it's going to be remediation work usually, unless you're near like a river or something like that. That could be a high consequence, but usually that's fairly rare. Right. Um, so it changes your risk tolerance a little bit because what you're trying to protect isn't really close to you. And sometimes so, so issues. Yeah. So so I mean, it, I kind of think of it like that old saying, if a tree falls in the forest and nobody hears it. Right. Did it make a sound? So if a, if a plant, if a remote plant has a flash fire and nobody's there, does it really matter? Now, obviously it matters, but the, yeah. the consequences certainly are different than a normal, you know, operating facility where I've got one, two, three operators who might be impacted and, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, okay. So, so we're, we're out in the middle of nowhere. Um, so the, the frequency, I guess, of impacting either people or the environment is lower because, uh, there's just not that much around. So how do companies, I mean, there's still risk there, right? So you can still yeah, have a yeah. fire. You can still have a, overflow of hydrocarbons that goes to some environmental receptor, whatever. So, you know, I've got an operator, as you just said, I've got an operator on site maybe a couple times a day, maybe, or maybe less on a, you know, depending on weekends or whatever. I don't know. Um, So how do companies manage that risk? Because it seems fundamentally different than what we normally talk about with, uh, with our uh, risk and our safeguards and all that. Yeah, for sure. And just as a, you know, kind of piggyback on what we're saying, like your frequency might be less, but the quantities are also less compared to your bigger plants where they're bringing in resources to it. There, your your plants at where the sources are. So usually you're not seeing larger facilities. You're seeing smaller facilities okay. and just kind of send it the pipeline. Good point. Um, so your quantity is also less, but you have less people there. But kind of managing risk there with an, from an operator standpoint is they'll stop by that facility probably twice a day in the morning to make sure nothing went crazy overnight, check all their meters, their gauges, their levels, make sure everything's working correctly, what their physical indications and what their digital indications are saying, and kind of just, you know, making sure things look right. So they do that twice a day usually, or sometimes more frequent if they are skeptical about some of the stuff they're getting 
or the weather's changing. They're like, oh, I usually see issues in the winter. They might be a little bit more aware of what's going on there. And that's kind of more just operator attention and awareness there. But if they do get into a situation where there is a process deviation, your response time is significantly different than what it is in the plant. Mm-hmm. In a plant, depending on how big it is, you might be able to respond 15 minutes. If you're a really fast runner, sprinter, have a bike or you know, a golf cart, you can buy up and get there in five, 10 minutes. Uh, at remote facilities, depending where you're at, if you're on site and location, and when I say that, you're, you're in the area, it could take maybe 30 minutes to an hour to get to it. Um, so your response time is a lot different and you're going to get a phone call because you might not have internet reception where you're at. So hopefully you have recept or cell phone service where it comes from the SCADA system where it's like, hey, at this facility, you are seeing a high alarm and it shut down your pump and you go respond to check it out. Sometimes you might be in a mountainous area where you see your facility on the other side of a ridge line or a valley, but it takes you 45 minutes to get there because <laughs> you have to traverse your way around you know, the terrain yep. or certain landowners don't want you driving on their property. So you have to follow the right go ways around or oh, sure. go around it. So you know, your response time is significantly different, but you're also perceiving your risk differently there because if it was very valuable and you didn't want that pump to shut down, you would have an operator on site all the time. Right. But because it's not that important or I don't know, not that important. Sometimes it's not worth it to have an operator on time because you might not see situations like that often. Mm-hmm. So you would rather just increase your response time to an hour for your operator to get there. So are you are you so when these companies are doing their you know, process design and, and all that, are, are they is that is that what they're thinking? Like, OK, because let's just say in a plant, right, I may have my high level alarm set knowing that within 10 or 15 minutes, somebody's going to be able to get there and, and stop it. Now, we can talk about whether that's an effective safeguard or not. But from a design standpoint, certainly that's one of the things that you would do. So do companies do, do companies have that sort of thinking or is it just like, you know, they're not really thinking about that that time. It just is what it is. They don't really think about the time. They, it's usually more it is what it is or just a, you know, a standard or practice. It's like, oh, we usually set the alarm at 75 percent high level or they will say we'll have an overflow stuff. So if it does overflow, we'll just go into secondary. We'll fill up this trench or something. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And then we'll deal with it later. Okay. Um, there's more of that because the direction that I've seen is sometimes it's easier to get a standardized system plant or facility in place and you just kind of just plop it on out there and just kind of go and kind of go from there. Okay. So even though we're not there, we're still plugged into the process through our SCADA system, through alerts and alarms, whether that's through to the local operations folks or whether that's at some other location. I know there are some some places that have that I've worked with that have, you know, uh, monitoring systems hundreds of miles away, like, you know, from West Texas, you know, all the way back to Houston or something like that, um, where someone can direct, oh, we've got this problem and direct resources as needed, right? Yeah, for sure. So depending on the size of the company, the sophistication Mm -hmm. kind of goes with that. The smaller the company, they probably won't have someone monitoring it 24-7 from like Houston or a city. They might Mm -hmm. just have a computer where it just says, hey, they hit the switch, go check it out, and you just rely a lot of your resources on the operator responding and figuring out the problem. 
Um, but if you do have the resources and there's someone from Houston, they might look at it going, oh, this looks funny. We'll contact the operator out there and they'll come check it out. So you're check it out. out. Yeah. Right. But still, okay. your response time there is significantly larger than if it was at a plant. Right. Granted, you might not but, have your impact immediately, but still, the response time's long, longer. But that's but that's also balanced off by lower inventories of hazardous stuff. Um, yeah. And and basically, it being more difficult to have an impact on any on any receptors, right? So that yeah. so it's it's that balancing act, which is what you know risk is a balancing act. So okay, so. You know, one of the things that I think of when when I think of these remote facilities and, you know, like with like, you know, an operator kind of goes around to a bunch of different, you know, different sites in the order of, you know, the course of the day is, you know, how how do companies manage the hazards of, of, you know, maybe just one person being on site? You know, there have been incidents. There was that that H2S fatality that CSB investigated last year, I think, related to remote facility where somebody showed up. Went went down with H2S and there was nobody else around that, that, you know, that that caused, you know, that that added to the incident. So, you know, do they do anything special related to that? And, you know, what happens if Joe goes on site to investigate and then gets hurt? Yeah. Yeah. So that's usually seen on, you know, large spaces, like if you're in a large area. When I say that, like pipelines, if you're going to check out a compressor station or a pump station or even a terminal. Oh, not really a terminal. Terminals usually have people there. But. If you're going to like offsite stuff where like a pig launcher or a pig receiver and you're just doing your checks, usually in remote areas, you might have a satellite phone, but most of the times companies require you to call a service they purchase where you call in and say, Hey, I'm going to go check out this site. If you don't hear from me in like X amount of hours, you might want to send someone to check send out. Help. What <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's some of the hiking, you know, when you're going out on a hike by yeah. yourself, it's kind of risky, but you kind of, Hey, I'm going to check out this park. I'm going to take this trail. If you don't hear from me by the end of the day, maybe send some help. Yep. But or- same concept, because uh, I had seen an incident before where a person went to check on a pig out in the middle of nowhere in like Canada on a pipeline, and he was struck by a pig. And uh, that service is like he hasn't checked in in X amount of hours, and they sent another operator to go follow up on him, and they found him. He was like injured and needed help. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, yeah. So they, so, so there's, there's some recognition and it kind of the, the buddy system from a distance sort of thing, right? Where, yeah. um, you know, let, let people know where you're going to be. And I'm sure I, I know in the chemical industry, there's, you know, there's things that you can get at. I'm not sure I've seen them actually used anywhere, but I know that I've seen them marketed where, you know, if you, if you, if you've got this device and you stop moving for more than, you know, five minutes or something, then, you know, it buzzes you. And if you continue to not move, it calls an emergency number, you know, whatever. So I don't know if those things are used much at all, but certainly those sorts of things would be available for, for these sorts of situations. Yeah, I have seen something like that. I've seen like four gas monitors for like H2S, LEL, I think oxygen and CO monitor. Yep. If you don't move often, it vibrates and then sends a pager. The tricky part on that one is I think if it, I don't know if it requires internet or like Wi-Fi. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that would be an issue out in the middle of nowhere, right? Yeah, so. I don't think anyone, I don't think companies operating out there are going to pay for satellite services. Actually, actually, he might get a satellite link going. <laughs> well, he might. You never know. Yeah, they're actually, I, you know, it, it's I've never heard of it used in in industry, but uh, my wife and daughter went on a trip this summer, as you know, and they 
they were planning to go into some kind of remote areas. And so we're like, all right, well, what are we going to use if, you know, if your cell phone isn't going to work? And there are satellite based like texting type things that people can use kind of actually that it will actually like leave breadcrumbs. Like you could pull up a map and oh, yeah. show like this is it, it kind of shows them shows them on a map. So I don't know if that's something companies could use, but uh, there certainly are you know more and more of these technologies that uh, they can help. So, okay, we've got a remote facility and, you know, something's going to happen. There's going to be an upset, you know, there's going to be some sort of a release. So, you know, I don't know, say it's an overfill scenario, right? So now I've got hydrocarbon coming out of, you know, out of a port somewhere. How are these companies, you know, handling that? And and we've talked a little bit about the initial response, but then like, you know, okay, so it takes Joe... He's on the other ridge and it takes him an hour to get there. So he finally yeah. gets there. But now it's just him. Like what what how how do companies handle actually responding to those sorts of releases? Yeah. So that's gonna go to your operator attention and awareness. And he'll probably assess like how bad it is. If it's like something that he could handle, he'll probably call like a back truck. The back truck comes out there, cleans it up, he'll call his EHS or HSC guy, I'm like, hey, I had a spill out here. This is how bad it looks. And, you know, they'll follow that track. But sometimes it might be a lot worse. And depending on what hazards they have, um, if you're just pipeline, it's usually probably just natural gas or crude oil. But sometimes it could be just like an H2S leak. If there's if that's there, you know, you would expect to have H2S monitors mm-hmm. alerting the operator before he shows up on site. So, you know, depending on the hazard consequences there, you know, you would have situations to kind of prompt the operators like, hey, this area is kind of not in good shape. You should dangerous, probably stay right. off. Yeah, right. dangerous and call your call that. And that's when they will, you know, implement their emergency response plan. And sometimes that just requires them to call their HSC, EHS guy and kind of go from there. And then sometimes if it's bad enough, they'll, you know, have a local emergency planning committee if they work that out with their local county. Yeah. Um, so they could kind of do that because if it's like an H2S release, Sometimes, you know, if, the, if it's a big release and they're concerned about a local highway, yeah. you know, the county would have sheriffs, you know, block off the road so that they could yeah. make sure no one drives into it. Or if it's a gas release, making sure no one drives into it. So it's just working with your local government to kind of work that out. Because when you're working on a remote facility, you're not going to have an on-site fire brigade or emergency right. response team. So you have right. to leverage community work there. Do they do outreach to those folks? I mean, obviously, uh, the best way to do that is to plan for it up front. So I assume that there must be yeah. some sort of effort for that outreach. Yeah. Ideally, it's being done and they planned it out already so that when it does happen, they're prepared and they're doing drills. Can't tell you if they're, everyone's doing it, but that's, you know, a gold standard. Ideally, that's what you would what you would certainly want and would, would expect. And it's very yeah. similar to even, I mean, even in, in a chemical plant, I mean, there are, you know, certainly large ones still have fire brigades, but even ones, medium-sized ones that in the past might have had a fire brigade, they just don't have the people for it, um, and nor do they want to do the training for it. So they make sure that they've got relationships with the local fire department, make sure that they've got relationships with, like, emergency response contracting firms, stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I kind of imagine similar here. Yeah, for sure. And if it's remote and you have to look at the risk and the facility didn't cost that much and you're content with just letting it, letting it, if it was caught on, yeah, if it caught on fire, if a lightning struck it, whatever the reason it might be, we don't want anyone to fight this fire. We're just going to let it, you know, burn and we'll buy new equipment for it to replace it. So you kind of just have to look at your, your risk tolerance and see what is acceptable. 
Okay. Um, okay. So I think we've covered most of the things that I was curious about here, but there's one more piece that I'd like to throw at you, and that is security. I think most of us are certainly familiar with, you know, a chemical plant or some sort of processing plant where you've got a, you know, you've got a, you know, fencing, security fencing, and you've got a gate and you've got, you know, some, somehow you have controlled access. And of course, PSM and RMP require that you have controlled access to your covered processes. So in an area where, uh, I mean, back in the day, everybody had a, you know, had a guard shack with at least one guard on site 24 seven, all that. Yeah. Those days are, I mean, there's some still do, but those days are gone. But here we're talking about, you know, there's not even an operator on site. So how do you manage the, how do, how do they manage the security at those facilities? Yeah. Usually it's probably a chain link fence that says no trespassing, you know, all that basic stuff you see. Yeah. Uh, but they usually have a chain link fence and it, the typical practice I've seen is like at the end of like your work day, when the operator makes his final like rounds, yeah. check it out, make sure everything's good. And then when he closes the gate, they usually put a lock on it. But as technology is getting better, I've seen bigger companies have like key fobs or a badge. So if yeah. you are allowed to, you can just badge in and the gate opens up, you know, by itself, even if you know the pin. The code sometimes they also have that. Yeah. So depending on how sophisticated you get, but I've seen it as basic as there's close a little arm gate, put a pad <laughs> on it, lock it, yeah. so you can't. With a sign it. that says "keep out," right? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> too as, as as I say, as sophisticated, but too pretty much to a gate like you'll see in a neighborhood where you type in the pin and the gate yeah. just rolls open and it closes. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I guess the fact is is that we're talking here about remote facilities where. Either, as we said, because of either uh, the amount of material or the distance to to receptors, the risk is pretty low. So if somebody's gonna, if somebody is gonna go in there and, and sabotage, they can't impact a heck of a lot, other than of course, you know, the facility itself. Yeah. Um, so security probably isn't as big of a deal. And I would also guess that probably some of those larger companies, they must be using cameras, right? Um, uh, cameras, or instead of using a chain link fence or like barbed wire fence, they might just put stone in it so that when you drive by, you just don't realize what's behind the wall. Right. Um, and I've seen that before. Because before working in the industry, when you drive down the highway, you see those stuff and you just don't blink an eye. But yeah. once I started working, I was like, oh, that's what's there. And you start yeah. looking. So I think bigger companies, there's like a pump station near my place and they have a really nice brick fence, but I just know it's a pump station back there. And it's uh, yeah. and I've seen an operator there popping in every now and then, make sure everything's good. But oh. it's hidden, so you don't really know what's back there. So every now and then right. I was drive by. Yeah. So it's yeah, most general public they don't really think bat two eyes about it. But right. yeah. you do lock it, and depending how you know secretive or you know hidden you want to be, you put a chain link fence to a nice stone brick fence. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So all right, so we've talked about we've talked about remote facilities, talked about how the risk at those facilities is different than maybe what we might see at some of the normal facilities that we talk about here, um, how they manage those risks, and some of the issues related to just a single person being on site. So anything else that you think we should bring up before we bring this episode to a close? No, really, the only emphasis I got is just understanding what your risk tolerance and kind of just when you understand your risk tolerance, it kind of lets you know what you can and can't engineer at those facilities. So I've definitely seen somewhere it's just kind of, oh, what happens if, you know, a high discharge pressure on your pump or compressor? Oh, it's just going to hit the PSV. 
well, you know, you don't want damage to your pump, but your safeguard is a PSV. And when you're in a plant scenario, the hazard is releasing that product, right, to your uh, employees. But when you're out in a remote facility, sometimes that's just plumped straight into the air. And yeah. the reasoning is it's a remote facility and there's no one there. There's no so one there. we're just going to, yeah. yeah, let it just kind of pop the relief valve and disperse. Yeah. yeah. So okay. your risk and consequences just different and it's good well, to I mean, understand I mean, what tolerance is. It's good to understand that, and but the fact of the matter is, is that you know we we said how different these facilities are than others, but it but it really does come back to that same thing: understanding what your risk is, understanding the bad things that can happen, and then making sure that you design your your facility and your processes, both you know both people processes as well as the equipment type processes, to make sure that you're managing that risk. So it all comes down to managing risks to your tolerance, and hopefully to not have impact to anybody, whether they're on-site or off-site. So, all right. Well, John, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It was a good conversation. Thank you. And we'll have you back on soon, I'm sure. But in the meantime, for you out in the audience, if you have a question or a comment about what John and I talked about this week, if you have an idea for a future episode or any questions about anything process safety related, we'd love to hear from you. Send us a voicemail using the link in our episode description, or you can always send us an email the old-fashioned way, podcast at AmplifyConsultants.com. And finally, our goal here at Amplify Process Safety is to save lives by partnering with companies that handle highly hazardous chemicals to create world-class process safety systems, as it's our firm belief that these systems will help prevent catastrophic incidents like fires, explosions, and toxic releases. Please don't hesitate to reach out to us if we can do anything to guide you on your process safety journey. And as always, thank you for listening. And until next time, be safe out there. We appreciate you joining us for this episode of Amplify Your Process Safety. Head to our website, AmplifyConsultants.com, to find our show notes and other resources. Thank you for joining us in our mission to ultimately save lives by advancing process safety right here on Amplify Your Process Safety. Until next time.